Hey now, it's podcast time. This is Jim. How are you doing out there? How's your pandemic going? Happy November. Hope your Halloween was good. It's the day after Halloween today, the day everybody takes their pumpkins and throws them away. You have that buyer's regret for buying something perishable. It's going well. I'm still back in uh, the Detroit area. And uh, it was a beautiful Halloween. It was uh, perfect. I couldn't have asked for anything better. Uh, it was like a beautiful fall day. I went out uh, in the morning, the afternoon. It was like sunny. And the leaves were just falling off the trees. Like when you go into where my parents live, um, you drive in the entrance. There's trees on either side of you. They're all just yellow and orange right now. And they were just shedding leaves like it was snowing leaves yesterday. And it was, it was nice and warm out. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful fall day. Just perfect, exactly what you would expect a fall day to be, and it was Halloween. And today it is 20 degrees colder. It's been snowing. It's like winter just new. It's like, okay, Halloween's over. It's time to, time to bring on the holidays. So it has been, it has been a Detroit experience so far. Anyway, uh, yeah, if anybody who's new to this, if you're just tuning in, uh, my name is Jim. I'm a San, uh, uh, software engineer. He, I was in San Francisco, um, till a couple months ago. And I just started recording this podcast during the pandemic. I was holed up in my place in the city and I needed to do something to keep myself sane. So I started turning this thing on and recording my thoughts. I don't plan anything. I am no professional, any kind of audio person. So don't expect much. I just turn this thing on and go. So fair warning. In any case, yeah, it, it is, it is cold today and I am just chilling in my car at the moment. People watching, uh, watching people come in and out of a little market. Just sitting here in my car in a parking lot with the heat on. It's kind of nice. It's warmer than my parents' house. This is what I used to do in, in college is I would just go driving to stay warm. My parents don't keep the heat up very, very warm. Um, you have space heater or something. Uh, any case. Yeah. I, I like to get out of the house. I felt I had to get out of the house today. I had to go do something. Um, I was just sitting around. So yesterday was Halloween. I decided, okay, you know what? I'm going to have a few beers. So what I'm going to do with the holiday. I feel like doing something somewhat out of the ordinary. So I decided to, uh, uh, have, um, have some libations to imbibe, which I typically do not do. So of course today my brain is a little sluggish. It's doing the, uh, the old snail NASCAR trying to get back into the, the daily routine. And so I, I really didn't have anywhere to go. There's really nowhere to go at the moment. Like the only place you could go that's warm enough would be a shopping mall. And people are not going to malls right now on account of this uh, damn pathogen. So uh, what I decided to do was go down to Oakland University, which is pretty close to where my parents live. They have a disc golf course there, which is... Uh, very, very densely 
it's it's in very very dense undergrowth. Like it looks like the disc golf course uh, would probably eat a lot of discs. Like you looks like the kind of course where you really have to know what you're doing because if you can't aim, your disc is going to go into woods, uh, some dense bushes that you may not be able to get your disc out of. And so I thought to myself, well, in the interest of having something to do, which would be better than nothing, uh, maybe I should just go walk this course backwards and see if I can find discs that people would just abandon. They'd say, you know what, it ain't worth it. I'm not, I'm not going through the underbrush to, to get that back. Let's see if I can come across any free discs. Um, I... I learned very, very quickly how cold Michigan really is. The thing is, I've been in California for quite a while. And I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, it gets cold in Michigan, but I can deal. It's not that bad, is it? Like, you never remember things as bad as they were. Like, we always remember the past with very rose-colored glasses, you know. Um, so I remember thinking like, oh, it wasn't that bad, right? I'm just, I must be remembering it you know, worse than it actually was. Nope, it is cold. It, it is absolutely freezing cold. It could be that I just don't have the right gear. I, I think my, I learned that my gloves, the winter gloves that I have that I've been using the last couple of years, they cover you uh, in terms of San Francisco cold. They do not cover you with Michigan cold when the wind is, it's very windy out today too, actually. Like it's, it is blustery. It, it is. It, it is winter, slapping you in the face, saying, "Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm coming." Uh, there is there is no fall left. But I learned very quickly that um, apparently, um, I, I mean, I walked this like 18 holes of, of golf course backwards, uh, frisbee golf course, and. You know, I was cold at first, but I kind of got used to it, except for my hands. I just had to stuff those in my pockets. Uh, but I realized that being out in the cold, that is like the perfect, uh, like mild hangover cure. I didn't like, I was feeling pretty lethargic, not feeling good at all. I got out and was just out walking in the cold for an hour, hour and a half just this frigid wind woke me right up and now I'm sitting in my car. It's kind of like the hangover never was. This is how I managed to deal with it in college. It could be. <laughs> ah, yeah. So let's see. Yeah. So that's what I did. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing going on. I don't know what, I don't know what exactly people would expect. You know, talk about actually, you know, like the thing is, I used to talk about a lot of things. If you look back over the, the this podcast, like there are some episodes that are like three or four hours long. And what did I ramble about? I mean, lots of stuff to ramble about. I have a lot of things I can talk about that are interesting to me. Uh, I've been away from San Francisco. Like I moved, like I ditched my place and moved back to Detroit uh, about two and a half months ago now. And it's interesting. I mean, whenever you do like uproot yourself, whenever you're in a place, 
you got like a situation, you got like a job and people and a place to live and you have things and a routine and all of that, like you kind of have certain mental habits. Like you have things that you tend to think about, things that you will just ruminate on, things that'll come up and, you know, like it'll cross your mind and you'll say, okay, I'm going to think about that for a while. Let's dwell on that for a bit. It's interesting because I find that whenever I like pick up and just haul out of a place, like when I left Santa Barbara, for example, it's like all the things that were on my mind that were really, really important that I, I seem to just keep habitually thinking about. It's funny how quickly all those things just go away when you move away from someplace. Like I, I left San Francisco. Like I remember being there and all the kind of stuff I talked about. It doesn't even seem like it matters anymore. I don't remember why I was so preoccupied with all that stuff. Why did I care? I mean, I remember why I cared, but I can't remember why I spent so much energy on it. Why did I ever? Like, why, why does it matter? So, I mean, it kind of feels like the decks are cleared. Um, I'm not really preoccupied with the same things that I was. I'm not worried about the same stuff. I don't have the same goals. It's kind of like you can just, it's a fresh start. So I'm trying to figure out what to do to fill that void that I think would be productive, you know. Um, yeah, maybe it's temporary. Maybe I just need a break. Maybe it's my my brain taking a vacation. Maybe someday I'll I'll get back to really being interested in philosophy and religion and you know Carl Jung, Jungian psychology. But for now, I'm just sort of enjoying life as it is as much as I can. I'm actually reading Stephen King again. I used to really like Stephen King when I was in middle school. It was, a, yeah, it was around the time I was 12 years old. Like I've been reading a lot of adult novels, like fiction, pop stuff. And I, I was always like frightened of horror movies. Like till, till for, yeah, till a relatively late age. Like my friends were all watching like Child's Play and what are some other horror, whatever horror movies there were in the eighties. Those things always scared the bejesus out of me. Like whenever they would come on, I would just look away or like leave the room. I remember we watched Jaws 2 at a friend's place when I was in I want to say it was fifth grade. I'm like 10 years old. And like, I watched the first half of the movie and the second half, I was just like, it was a sleepover. So we all had sleeping bags. It was that kind of thing. So I I was just inside my sleeping bag, inside out or not inside out, but upside down. So I was just, I was just inside. I had my head at the bottom of the sleeping bag and I was like occasionally peeking out through the zipper could barely make out any detail it blurred it enough so like the gore didn't bother me probably the most corny uh violent movie you're ever gonna see it's the dumbest like the the monster like the, the the shark it doesn't look real at all 
and it's it's just a ludicrous, you know, cash grab, a follow-up to the the original. And this was something I just couldn't bring myself to watch. It scared the hell out of me. I don't know why. Even at the age of 10. So, I mean, at the age of 12, I was kind of like, I kind of came to realize how ridiculous this was. I was like, you can't, like, have your head in the bottom of a sleeping bag for the rest of your life. You know? Uh, you gotta, like, toughen up. Man up and, uh, you know, be able to face this kind of stuff. You know, so I was like, I'm gonna start reading horror fiction. I'll just go to, I, like, I just looked at Stephen King, and I was like, yeah, he seems to be the most popular, like, guy who writes horror stuff that adults read. Like, so I'm just gonna, like, dive into that. And it's kind of like exposure therapy. Just get used to it. Like a hot tub. And so I, I've read a lot of his books. Like, I think just about everything he had written up until that point, it was like, uh, I want to say 90, 1994. And uh, I started rereading it about a year ago because I saw the second movie and that was, I, I talked a little bit about that on uh, my blog. Like it chapter two, that one that came out in 2019, which was like the adult half of the story and then coming back to face the clown monster again as adults. That was the movie that actually got me into therapy because the movie itself was very, very therapeutic. Like it's, it's, it's not elliptical. It's not like there's this hidden message, but it's very much about, you know, going back to your place of origin and, and confronting the demons of your childhood. Like it doesn't do anything to hide that fact. That's, clearly what it's about but for some reason watching six characters do this fight their childhood traumas and repressed emotions like confronting them as a literal monster I don't know why but for some reason this was just very cathartic I came away from like the first time I saw that in the theater, I left, and it was just a beautiful night. It was just, I felt free and clear. It was like some weight had been lifted up off me, like there was like hope. And so I, I ended up going back to see it the next week, same thing. I ended up seeing it, I think, about 10 times in the theater. And towards the end, it, it got to the point where the, it, the movie was at the end of its run, and I couldn't even see it in San Francisco anymore. So I had to like commute south to go see it. And then it wasn't there. So I had to go to the East Bay. Like I had to cross the, the, the Bay Bridge. Yeah. And eventually it was just completely gone. And like I got the soundtrack for the two weeks when it wasn't in the theaters and it wasn't out on video yet. So I could just listen to the music, feel like it was. Like I, like I was experiencing it. And this, this all worked. Like the catharsis, like that feeling of just, wow. It really, it just, it worked for me. It was crazy. Uh, yeah, but that was at the end of that, when I finally got the movie and started watching it at home, I was like, you know, maybe this is a sign that I really ought to like be 
going into like and talking to someone, you know, it's time I actually did this properly. At least it at least made me feel like there's it was possible to move past the issues. That's the thing. It gave me like some semblance of 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 hope. Like I can beat this, you know, if I if I do this properly. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was an interesting interesting fall. But I I only like read a few hundred pages of that. It's like a thousand page book. It's a ridiculous story. Like I'm not as much as I enjoyed the movie and saw it multiple times, uh, I, I wouldn't. I don't recommend it to people. But so that was about a year ago, and this year I've just been kind of looking for. I find it helps me to read, and the problem is the kind of stuff that I typically keep around to read is stuff that you can't just casually pick up and start reading, without being mentally engaged. So it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like you haven't jogged in a while. Like, let's say I haven't read in a day or two and you're really worn out from work. Like I'm really beat mentally. It's like, if I want to read at that point, the books that I keep around, some deep philosophy or something, like it's kind of like not exercising, not doing any cardio for a few weeks and then suddenly going out and thinking you can just, you know, jog a uh, five or 10 miles without stopping. So I've been trying to like get books that are easier to like just pick up and go through. And I found that Stephen King is like compulsively readable as, as ridiculous as you, you could point is what his stories are about and say, there's not a whole lot here. There's not a whole lot of substance to them. Um, say what you will, but he does know how to write. He knows how to play with language. He knows how to develop characters that are credible that's the thing, like Stephen King movies generally don't work and it's because they don't actually develop the characters properly. They don't make the characters' motivations credible. That is what he spends so much time doing in his books is that people are doing some really far-fetched things. People do like downright evil things. Uh, they do things that would terrify you and if you're watching the movies, the way they usually play them out, you just you have to just take it on faith that this stuff is happening. You're like, yeah, there's this person is just nuts, and they're they've decided to kill this other person. Uh, usually, he explains in the writing like why why this is this person is doing this, like why they're motivated to do this, and you believe it. In the movies, it just sort of happens, and it just doesn't work. So, I mean, Stephen King can write. He can, he can bring a story to life, uh, like a son of a bitch. Despite how crazy that story might be. So, anyway, there's, there's actually a very, very short list of books that he's written that I have any interest in rereading, and I've actually reread most of them. So I'm trying to find some other stuff that is just as compulsively readable. 
just so I'm like consuming words uh, on a regular basis. And it actually helps to like, like if I want to read something a little bit more strident and difficult, uh, it, it helps to just pick up, you know, something like Stephen King and just force myself to read 50 pages of that and then to switch gears over to something harder. You know, my brain gets in the reading mode. But yeah, he's he's got some interesting stories. I forgot how good of a writer he was. I remember even when I was 12, I remember reading Stephen King and thinking this stuff is like really easy to read and it's enjoyable to read. And I, I, I was like, of course, so, you know, um, what's the word? So full of myself, so egotistical, so much of an egomaniac. I was like, well, that's because I'm just such a good reader, you know, and I, I would pick up other books and try to read them. And I was like, well, why aren't these as easy to read as Stephen King? You know, like it should be just as easy because I'm so good of a reader, but I would just, I would get bored with them and, and, and leave them aside. It's because he's, he, he writes things that are compulsively readable. He knows how to write. He knows how to draw you in and just catapult you forward uh, through a story. And there's not a whole lot of people that can do that quite the way that he can. This is why he has a net worth of, you know, several hundred million dollars. And most writers do not because he has this, he's developed this skill over several, several decades. Um, but I, I'm looking for other things. Like I, I've read a little bit of Neil Gaiman and oh yeah. Uh, so my family watched Coraline yesterday. Like my parents are, my parents are always looking for things to watch. It's kind of weird because they, first of all, my, my dad is like, he's, he's like in cognitive decline and he, he always like wants to watch stuff on TV, but he, he always like, he, he doesn't want to pick anything. He wants it to be, to be picked for him, but he wants it to be something that he, he likes. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's something that would annoy me if it was anyone but my, you know, father with mild dementia but it's kind of like he says like pick something put on something to watch like a movie and i'm like oh what 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 do you want to watch And he's like i don't care so i'll put something on that i think he might like and he'll be like i don't like this you know change it of course he won't say that he'll say you know we don't have to keep watching this if you don't want to i'll be like do you not want to keep watching and i'll be like not really so he's not terribly direct in his communication. He, he just he wants you to put something on, and he wants to like it, but he's really really polite. He's your he's your typical Midwesterner, I guess, just polite to a fault. Ah, uh, but at least he's telling me. At least he's not sitting through something he doesn't want to watch for like two hours. But so there's that. There's like he just doesn't care, but he does care. Um. And then there's my mom who really, she has very particular tastes. You know, there's a lot of things she doesn't like. Like if a, if a movie has like the F word in it constantly, like if people are just throwing around like Pulp Fiction style, uh, she doesn't really like that. She doesn't really like violence. You know, there's just a lot of 
very common things that happen in movies and TV shows that she doesn't enjoy. Like they, they disturb her or put her off, which is, which is fine. But, you know, they have trouble finding things that they both want to watch. Like there's, if there's overlap between their two tastes, like things that they would both enjoy watching, it's, it's not a very big section of the Venn diagram. And they don't, I, I don't think they really know how to make it bigger. They don't know how to like explore and find things and try things that, that they might want to watch. I mean, it's a, it's a risk trying things. Um, this is one of the ways I felt I had to break away from my parents. My parents are really, really risk averse, especially my mother. You know, if you feel disturbed by a lot of common things in movies, then you're going to limit how many movies you give it, you actually try, you know, you're going to restrict yourself. You're going to stick with what you know, because that's what you're comfortable with. And every movie you put on that you're not sure of, it could contain some element or something that you don't really like, you know, that puts you off. I realized pretty early on when I was a teenager, I got to break away from this. This is why I was like going out and reading Stephen King. I was like, I don't want this to be a limit on my life. You know, I got to toughen up to disturbing things and the things that I don't like and get used to them because that's the only way you, you can experiment and learn new things, you know? Uh, but, you know, it's kind of fallen to me you know, in the evening, it's like my dad is sitting there waiting for something to get, end up on the TV and he's very impatient. He's like, he wants something picked immediately. And my mother doesn't know what to pick. She's just sitting there flipping through, you know, I put Netflix on their TV and I, you know, my mom's been using Prime for a little while, but she's flipping around looking for something that maybe they both will like. And she has, she has no idea. Uh, she doesn't know what's out there and doesn't know how to discover it. So, yeah, it's kind of like it, it's, it's kind of what I'm trying to do is, is bring a catalog of movies to the table that I think both of them would enjoy. And, and if possible, maybe I would enjoy them too. Although I don't really care so much about that. I can, I'm pretty easygoing when it comes to stuff. So what I've been trying to do is, is, go through the Pixar catalog, if you will, not just Pixar, but basically like the computer, like CGI uh, movies for kids. You know, usually those have like adult jokes in them, like things only adults would appreciate. And they're, they're simple enough that I think my father would understand what's going on and be able to keep track of it in his mental state. And, you know, I, so basically there's something in there for everyone. You know, it's not disturbing. It's kid-friendly, parent-friendly. And they're engaging. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I've been trying to, like, steer us in that direction. And there's a whole lot of movies. I didn't realize this, but there's a whole lot of movies out there that are in that vein that I just haven't seen. Like, I don't remember when, when did A Bug's Life come out? That was like 2006, I want to say. That was so long ago. And there's just like a backlog of like maybe 15 movies. Or sorry, not 15 years. 15 years worth of movies. 
uh, that are like kind of like this. Most of them I haven't seen. And like stuff like cars, I've seen cars or stuff like up or uh, like there's one called Monster House, which I thought about watching for Halloween. Um, but last night we watched uh, Coraline. It's like they wanted to watch something Halloweeny, and I was like, "Well, let's let's do Coraline." I actually read uh, the book um, by Neil Gaiman about a month ago. That was a good one. That is, that was a supremely creepy book. It's um. You know, I guess written for uh, for kids. I think it's one of Neil Gaiman's kids' books. So he has that in the graveyard book. Uh, but Coraline was a disturbing story. Like, it's not. I don't know at what age I would be comfortable with my kid reading it, but it was. Uh, it's dark. And the movie wasn't quite as dark. Like, it sort of glossed over. It didn't dwell on the darker things, but it was still creepy. But it was an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous film. Like the way it was produced. Like there are scenes in there that just, they feel like dream sequences. The way the lights are. Like I rented it. I think I'm going to have to go back and like watch that again a couple more times. Cause it was, yeah, very, very, very well done. I mean, it's Neil Gaiman. So of course it's a great story. Uh, but it was very, very well produced. Um, just, yeah, definitely worth watching. So it was Coraline. And yeah, the Graveyard Book was a good one, too. I actually read that one um, just before I read Coraline. Also good. That's an interesting idea for a story. There's a common motif in mythology where... So, I mean, you know the story. There's, there's a very famous king, you know, in, in antiquity, in a story, uh, has a son. And it's prophesied that the son is going to, like, kill the father and overtake the throne. And, some, you know, there's some soothsayer who says this. And so the king says, well, I'm not having any of that. So I'm going to, like, put the kid in a basket and send him down the river and he'll just die. You know, they never kill the kid. They, you know dump them in the wilderness somewhere. Uh, like Romulus and Remus, for example. You know, they end up getting raised by wolves and are raised by, you know, some peasant somewhere. And later they learn that they're of nobility. You know, they somehow return and they, you know, kill their father anyway. Like whatever they were prophesized to do, they they do anyway. The efforts to cut it off weren't successful. That's one element. You know, you can't dodge fate. And the other element is that whatever you're raised in, it turns out it's not actually your real family. You know, you're not actually a peasant. You come from nobility. So you learn as you're coming of age that who you thought you were, your entire identity is, is challenged. And typically, whenever this occurs in old, you know, ancient mythologies, it's always somebody who comes from no nobility is raised by peasants. 
and then they learn, oh, they're actually of noble birth. So you can kind of that that fantasy actually makes sense, you know, because imagine you're a peasant. You'd like to imagine if you're fantasizing and you are a peasant, you want to imagine, oh, what if I were actually like a king's son? What if I actually grew up and realized and learned, you know, I, I actually come from from means. I actually have like a an amazing birthright coming to me. I might inherit a throne of, of, of a kingdom. That's what you want to imagine. If you're like hearing these stories and then reading them. Uh, there's actually one exception to that, and that would be the story of Moses. And it's completely the opposite, where there's somebody who's a peasant. He's born of the slaves. He's raised by nobility. And he comes to learn as he comes of age that, oh yeah, he actually is of the slaves. He's one of the, one of the Hebrews. Uh, the graveyard book is an interesting twist on this, and that it's about a child, a very, very young toddler, um, who his entire family is killed, and he ends up accidentally stumbling away uh, from this fate. He's going to be killed himself, but he doesn't. He, he just stumbles out of the house just ahead of the killer, and he wanders into a graveyard, and there are a bunch of dead spirits in the graveyard, and they end up saving him from this killer. You know, they one of them talks to the killer and steers him away, so there's there's no child here. And so there are some people in the graveyard that raise this child, um, as one of their own, as if he were uh, a, a ghost, one of the spirits in the graveyard. And so it's it's kind of the same motif. It's like this child grows up amongst the dead. He knows he's different, and eventually he comes to learn, I'm actually one of the living. You know, the, the world that I'm in, that I've been raised in, is not mine. And it's it's interesting the way the character sort of gets out and explores the world of the living with this understanding of, you know, the world of the dead. It's a very, very, it's a very, very good story. I'd highly recommend it. And yeah, let's see. Where was I going with that? This whole thing is just tangents. Like I said, I don't, I think I, I always try and find my way back to like the main flow of the conversation. Like, where was I going? So I can pick up the thread that I left behind as though it mattered. It really doesn't. The rambling is just what I'm doing here. I do wonder if anyone's listening to this. I kind of thought that, like, it looked to me, if I look at the analytics of this podcast, it looks like there are some people who are, like, stumbling upon this and listening to episodes. Like, it looked like there might be maybe six people listening to this. And I don't know if that's actually accurate. Like, it looks like every every two or three weeks, like, it's not, like, at a regular interval, but, like, one day there will suddenly be somebody who, like, listens to, like, all 30 of the podcasts I've put out so far. As if somebody just discovered it and sampled all of them. And that doesn't really seem like, it doesn't seem like people. It seems like, since that's the regular pattern, that seems more like a spider. 
like something that's just crawling podcasts, like maybe sucking down the audio and doing something with it. I don't know what that could be. I don't think it's people finding this. So with any luck, nobody is listening to this. That would be nice. Really, it would be great if nobody ever heard this. Uh, I really, yeah, I'm glad that I think most people start podcasts because they're kind of thinking that they'll get, they'll like catapult themselves to the top of like podcasting fame. Like they want to be Joe Rogan or something and get fuck you money and just have the freedom to like just interview people all the time the way he does. Uh, that's really not what I want. That's like the opposite of what I want. To have any notoriety would be terrible. I kind of wonder about that. Like there, there is some part of me that would like to have some influence. Like I would like to, I would like to be able to put ideas out there and have them consumed and kind of get some feedback on them. Like it would be nice if I wasn't just shouting into a void and that was, that was it. Like at this point I might as well just go find a, an abandoned cave somewhere and yell into it. That's basically what this podcast is, but it's slightly more persistent. But if the thing is, if you get people listening to it, then you suddenly get people, you if you get enough people, listening to you, then you're going to start getting detractors. People start criticizing you for what you say they scrutinize. And not in a constructive way. The thing is, I would really like to have what I'm talking about on here, any of these things, be part of a a larger conversation. This is the reason I come on here and talk about things is because the kinds of things that I talk about are nothing that you could take to a normal conversation. Like talking about Carl Jung psychoanalyzing, you know, historical figures over the last 2,000 years. I'm very curious about that. I love reading about that sort of thing. I love talking about that sort of thing. I really haven't met anybody else who does. And so it's, I just come on here and talk about whatever things I can't take to social events, you know, whatever whatever I can't go to a party and talk about is what I talk about on here. I really wish I could talk about these things with people because uh, at the very least people would challenge you. Um, I love it when I'm like telling someone about an idea that I think is true, like an idea that I've just sort of been kicking around in my head for a month or so. I'm like, well, here's, here's my opinion about this. And they're like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's true. You know, you kind of present your idea, make a case. And they sort of say, well, you haven't considered this. You know, you, there's also this thing, or they ask a clarifying question that challenges it and stretches the whole idea in a different direction. And so it does change things. That is, that is what I wish I could get. I I would, I would like to have, I guess I would like to have enough notoriety as a content producer of sorts, whether that's a writer or whatever where I actually was getting, there actually was some conversation happening, like I'm playing into a broader dialogue about something, 
where, you know, I might actually be getting other people's ideas, like other people's input in these sorts of things. You know, I, I think I've mentioned why it is. I, I wish this were, I wish this actually were like, not just me. I wish I had somebody else who would come on here and have these conversations with me. But I think that would be more, that'd be more interesting. Uh, in any case, yeah, but what you don't want, before I completely kill this thread and get back to one that doesn't need to be returned to, that I can't even return to because I don't remember it. Uh, what you don't want is to be, to be so well known that people just latch on to what you're saying and just attack you for the hell of it. Like this is the whole problem on Twitter. I like using Twitter. And the reason I like using Twitter is because I have almost no followers. And the followers I do have, I don't think they're paying attention to me. I don't think they're paying attention to Twitter. So I can just go on there and, you know, type whatever the hell I want. Use it however I see fit. And, you know, it kind of, you kind of feel like you're putting something out there that people are listening to or people are reading, but they're not. Nobody's paying attention to me. But it feels like it. So it feels good to put it out there. But there's no risk. At least the risk that, you know, what I'm going to say is going to be jumped on by, I don't know, some, some conservative soccer moms who are worried about some stranger on the internet corrupting their children or whatever. Whatever it is, you know, saying something that sounds less than enlightened by today's social standards, you know, so it sounds mildly controversial. It's critical of religion or something. And suddenly, you know, there's a bunch of people attacking you, saying you're a terrible person, blowing something out of proportion. Uh, there's very, very little risk that is going to happen with me. And that's why it's, that's why I love using the internet. I would hate to be using the internet as somebody who had any kind of an audience, or at least an audience that was so substantial that it would include just average people who are, you know, nothing else, if, if, if nothing else, they're just angry. This is what I don't like about politics right now. Like, I understand that there's division. There's always disagreement. That, that's, that's nothing new, and I don't think that's really going to change. I think what's new at this moment, at least relative to the last, at least 20 or 30 years, as long as I've been tracking the culture around politics. What's different now compared to what I can remember is the anger, like just the fury about things. It's not just that either you, you have an opinion and other people disagree with you and it kind of bugs you. It's like people are, it seems like there are way too many hills on which people are willing to die and hills that like fundamentally do not matter. That's what I, I don't understand. I don't have the energy for that anymore. I think there was, I, I do get it. Like the thing is, I, I don't, I try not to be too critical of people. Like you meet people who are just angry and they clearly have taken up some sort of cause, you know, somewhere on the right or the left, they've picked an issue that they think is, what, what do they call it? A political issue that is 
a deciding factor. Like this is a banner issue. Is that what it is? That's not the term. I don't remember the term I'm looking for. Anyway, it's the one issue you care about. Everybody sort of picks on one and they get frustrated when people disagree with them. Uh, yeah, no, I, I remember that. I mean, I, the thing is, I don't, what I don't have anymore is the certainty to think that I'm correct about anything. Um, and I, you know, I, yeah, in the absence of complete certainty, um, you know, you, you, it's hard to get fired up and to, to be passionate about anything. You know, there's definitely, I have values and I think that my political opinions tend to reflect those values, but the values themselves are not, you know, like I, I've said this before, I'm, I consider myself to be centrist. I'm not right or left. And I don't like those labels. I've, I've been both actually, like I've kind of gravitated back and forth. Um, about four years ago, I would have considered myself to be a liberal, very much on the left. And I mean, I mean, over the course of like that year, 2016 and I, 2017, I sort of had a lot of trouble getting my footing with what was going on with, you know, Democrats, with liberals, the sort of vitriol that was rising up around Trump. Now, I don't like Trump. I'm not somebody who supports him. I'm not an apologist. I don't defend him. That's not where I typically go. But I was having a lot of trouble with just... Like, I would turn on NPR. This happened a lot in, like, 2017, 2018, where I would would turn on NPR in the Bay Area. And it would just be a, a panel of people sitting around talking about how dumb Trump was, how terrible what he was doing was, and how dumb his supporters were. It was just these talking heads venting. And it seemed very, it seemed like a waste of energy. It seemed like exactly what Trump was doing, but just a different political flavor. And I couldn't understand a whole lot of the ideology that was coming out of it. It was sort of inflexible. This is the way it has to be. Uh, sort of headstrong uh, sentiments about all of it. I, I really was having a lot of trouble finding something to identify with. It was the same reason I, I at, some, at some points I've been conservative. I probably considered myself more conservative in college. Amidst all that, it was like 2003. Uh, you know, junior, senior year of college for me. And we go into Iraq for the second time. And the protests I heard around that just didn't make sense. Like the sentiment I heard around, uh, like why this was a, why it was a mistake to go into Iraq. It just, it didn't seem, I, I didn't get it. And it seemed like the conservatives made more sense at that point. I, I, 
yeah, so I kind of took it on. And at some point I realized, well, you know, I don't think I, I agree with a lot of conservative points. Um, at some point, it just, you know, it stopped being about just Iraq and the issue shifted and the issue it was about. I just, I couldn't agree with that. But it took me a while, like after oscillating back and forth, you know, like saying, okay, whatever, whatever the banner issue is uh, on the left, if I don't agree with it, that doesn't make you, a, you know, somebody on the right and vice versa. Like maybe you're just somebody who considers an issue, like every issue individually without reference to what you have to be. This is why I don't like labels. As soon as a person says that they're a Republican or a Democrat, you immediately have to know, like, if some new issue comes up, what does my tribe think? You can't just say, what do I think about this issue as a person? How does it resonate with my value system? You immediately have to say, well, what do, like, how does it, what do, what do my peers think? You know, as soon as you identify with a group, it matters to you what the group thinks before you take on your own uh, opinion. You take that into account. And I think that can be dangerous. I think it tends to be a pretty useful heuristic. Like, you can't decide about everything. Like, there are most political issues I know nothing about. You know, I don't know enough to actually have a strong opinion or to argue one way or the other. Like the death penalty, for example. Um, I, I am against the death penalty. I have some intuition around it. it it's to say if, if a murder is, for example, premeditated, then if a person is aware that the death penalty is a possibility and it doesn't dissuade them, then it doesn't act as a deterrent. If a murder is not premeditated, or rather if there's if it's done on the spur of the moment, um, it's just a crime of passion, for example. Uh, presumably people who do that sort of thing in states where there is the death penalty, they know there's capital punishment and it doesn't deter them either. So in neither case, it doesn't work as any kind of deterrent. So why, if the penalty doesn't act to stop the crime, why have it, why do it? So intuitively, it makes sense to me. I don't know if that's true, though. And I have heard that uh, there's probably other angles to it that I, I don't know about. Like, things are always much more complicated than they just intuitively seem. And I have heard that it's more expensive to put somebody to death than it is to, like, just keep them in prison. I, I guess because of the way if you're going to constantly appeal something, I guess it, it, what it costs the public, it ends up being more. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard that. All these like little facts, any, any major issue, you've heard a bunch of stuff from both sides about it. And people just sort of take the fact that covers the position they want to agree with. And they say, well, this is the fact that I'm using. I don't actually know. Uh, on most issues, which of this popular folklore that you hear about the issue is true versus not. 
And so it's very difficult for me to argue one thing or the other. There, there's a small handful of issues I actually probably could speak cogently about. And those things are never simple. You know, it's never just a matter of the right or the left is correct. Like both sides usually have a point that must be taken into account. And so this is why I don't, I, I just I just sort of sit in the middle. I'm like, look, I just am going to abstain from voting here. Like not literally abstain from, from voting, but just not commit yourself to either side of the political divide, you know? Not party line, anyway, you know? But just sit in the middle, consider every in- issue carefully, and maybe, just maybe, if you don't screw it up, which, because we're human, most people probably do, maybe you'll, you'll be right occasionally. But hell, I don't know. I really don't know. What I, what I do believe in is balance. I do believe that like the, the right and the left both have a kind of truth to them. And if you take that truth and like either one of those truths, if you were to apply it the way that they believe it, it wouldn't lead to an optimal outcome. The optimal outcome is somewhere in the middle. It's the fact that you have this tension of these two conflicting opinions. It sort of keeps things in the balance. They act as a check and a balance on each other. And whatever equilibrium is established between the two, it tends to be where, it tends to be where society is stable. I think it makes a lot of sense that there are two political parties in the United States. Like people talk about wanting more parties. I think two is actually the perfect number. I'm not sure that human beings can handle more than that cognitively, at least not in mass. I haven't looked into that before. Like we have a two party system and I think that I would guess that's probably the way the human brain is wired for like two different competing things. There's Coke and there's Pepsi. And maybe there's like a, something like a Fago in Detroit, a Fago Cola. You know, there are other alternative colas, just the way there are Ron Paul's and Ross Perot's, but there are two major ones. But that's not true everywhere. There are a lot of countries where there are, I think there, there, there was a, an election going on. It was either in 2016 or shortly before, but I was talking to somebody from Mexico and he was saying that the last major election in Mexico, there had been three major political parties and three major contenders. So it wasn't a two party system. And I've, I've heard of countries that have more than three, like there, there are just several of them, although I couldn't tell you which ones they were. I wonder how, like, what is political culture like in those kinds of countries? Like that's that's largely what I want to know. I, there's there's actually two books about politics that I would like to read. One is to say, let's talk about the political climate, like political culture among the general population, prevailing sentiments, and the conflicts in them in countries that are not the United States. 
you know, just what is the issue? Uh, what is the conflict? You know, what is, what, what do the two sides believe? And what do the various political factions believe? Like, how does the political system tie in to the issue? How are they leveraging the issue? How are they influencing it? In any de- democratic society, anyway, I'd like to read that. And I'd also like to read a book that talks about popular times in history, but offering the, the prevailing political sentiments of the general population. So it's very easy, for example, to look at something like let's say World War II. There is an awful lot of literature and media and film that has been produced about World War II. But it's about the major figures that were involved and it's about the the war. It's about the battles that were going on and how those played out. And it, it would be very, very easy, for example, to look at all of that and just conclude that yeah, there was something bad going on in Germany. Um, Hitler was a bad guy. Mussolini was a bad guy. Stalin was a was an awful guy. And to just say, well, it's a foregone conclusion that all of these things um, were bad. You know, like Americans knew about this extermination of the Jews that was going on in Nazi Germany, for example. And so when the question came up, like, well, should we send soldiers over there to defeat them, to try and fight this horrible stuff that was going on, that you you could believe very, very easily that there was consensus. Like, it's, it's like looking back now, Hitler's the easy example, like, it seems like whenever we want to point to somebody and say that they're an evil political leader, you just compare them to Hitler. Hitler is like the gold standard of political evil, of, of political power run amok and wreaking havoc on the on society. But if you lived in the United States in the 1930s, when all of this was going down, one, there, I don't think there was general knowledge of what was really going on in Germany. And even if those stories did get out, even to the extent that they were circulating, I don't think people were in 100% agreement. You look at Charles Lindbergh, there, there were people who were considering becoming part of the Nazi party to the extent that it existed in the United States. You know, there were isolationists, there were people in the United States who said we should not get involved in the war. You know, even knowing what's going on in Germany, the question is, is it our problem? Is it our, is it worth the expense of human lives to go over there and put a stop to what's going on? It's easy to look at it now and say, well, yes, of course, of course we should have done that. And it's a good thing that we did. But at the time, 
that wasn't what was happening in the general public. So the book I would like to read is to look at these points in history, say during World War One, World War Two. Um, not Vietnam, because I think I think Vietnam has plenty written about public dissent. Uh, but the the these, the two world wars to say, well, what was the prevailing sentiment in the United States? Like, what were people actually talking about? Like, if you walked into a a little deli and over list, like overheard conversations that were going on, what exactly were, were the issues of the day? What were people arguing about? You know. That's the World War II history book I'd like to read. Like what what was going on in popular culture? You know, what were people talking about? Um, I think that is what gives you context. Like the way most of us experience the wars that are going on now, like the United States being involved in Afghanistan for as long as we have been and, you know, it was Iraq. And just what we do in the Middle East. Um, like we experience it one way. And the way we get to learn about wars from the past is from a completely different perspective. And so it's hard to really know what to think. It's hard to know exactly how to draw comparisons and, and what to think of what's going on now. Does it actually make sense that we're fighting any of these wars now, you know, the conversations we're having, like the controversies about whether or not we should be wasting, if you want to call it wasting, whether or not we should be expending the resources on this or that conflict in this day and age. It would be helpful to know to what extent those arguments were going on at a time when we look back and say, well, of course it was worth it. If it isn't a new conflict, if it's not a new argument, I'd like to know that. I'd like to know what elements are the same. So as to be able to compare apples and oranges. It's like, this is what I like about history. It does give you perspective on the present, but most of what you get from history, especially in regards to uh, waging war, you know, war between nations, it's two very different perspectives between what we're experiencing and what has happened. Anyway, I think I've talked that point into the ground. Still just sitting in this, still just sitting in this parking lot watching people come in and out of this market. I kind of wonder how long how long would I have to sit here before somebody started hassling me? The thing is, like, I just came from, like, San Francisco. In, in a big urban area like San Francisco, like, there is, there's a lot going on. You could go sit in your car somewhere public, and as long as you're allowed to park there, nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to care. But I, I'm back in, like, the sub suburban Detroit, like Oakland County now. And 
Yeah, like this is very, very stable, let's say. There's not a lot going on. Like police are just sort of bored around here. They don't have anything to do. And people really don't have any real things to worry about. There is no crime to speak of. It's amazing how worried people like if you go somewhere like San Francisco, people in general, of course, they're they're worried about crime, but they're not like pathologically freaked out about it. Like they're not giving themselves mental illness or freaking out about, you know, what could possibly go wrong about people could break into your how like place and like rob you. Uh, people could like break into your car and steal things. People are worried about that, but they're not giving themselves like mental illnesses, stressing about it. Like it's just something you have to take into account and, you know, try and safeguard against. Now in, in suburban Detroit, like the kind of place where I grew up, people are really, really worried about crime, which made no sense to me, but because there is no crime. There is absolutely nothing to worry about. Like there's way more police than are really needed given how much happens here. And yeah, it's it's just, I, I guess that's why people live in the suburbs. If you have that much anxiety about possibly getting robbed or you know, something, if you're worried about something happening to, happening to you, this is where you naturally would end up living. It's somewhere that's just very sheltered. You know, there's a lot of resources um, to keep crime to a minimum. You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess that must be it. It must be that if you're really, really worried about crime and you have the means, you end up living somewhere like this, you know, um, uh, suburban, you know, areas that uh, have really well-funded police departments where nothing ever happens. Basically, all the uncertainty of existence has been squeezed out and made intolerably consistent is a polite way of saying boring. I thought maybe it was the fact that there's nothing going on. Like human beings are just looking. If you're in an environment like northern suburban Detroit where nothing happens, your brain is just wired to find problems. And so it finds, it finds problems. I don't know which it is, but all this to say that like you could sit in a parking lot somewhere in suburban Detroit, somewhere like Oakland County, someplace like Troy, where I grew up. And if you do that for long enough without going into a store, you're just sitting there, eventually the cops uh, will show up. Somebody will call them. They'll say, hey, there's this guy just sitting in his car. We don't know what he's doing. And the police will respond to it. They will say, yeah, we got nothing else going on. We're sitting around on the interstate, occasionally writing tickets. We're bored as fuck. Let's go see what this guy's doing in his car. You know, <laughs> it's something we can tell our bosses we did. You know, look busy. 
uh, and I'm not even kidding about that. Like I did have a friend in high school and again, where I grew up, there was nothing to do. It was just, we would, one of us had a car, we could drive to just get into a car and go anywhere that isn't our parents' houses. There was really nothing to do. We just go to the mall and walk around or just drive around aimlessly wasting gas. That's it. So that was the who put it, just teenage wasteland. But I had a friend who was sitting in his car outside a hotel. Um, I think this was in the evening. And he was there just sort of killing time in the back of the parking lot. There was nobody near him. And apparently, like, all of a sudden, like, five cop cars just descended on him out of nowhere. Like, they just came at him from all angles, surrounded him. And this was like 2002, 2003. So I think it was like a Homeland Security sort of thing. Like they thought he was doing some sort of terrorist stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not even kidding. Like I kind of wonder how long I could sit here just doing this thing before somebody, somebody cared that I'm loitering outside of this, uh, grocery store. Not particularly worried about that, but I, I am. I am wondering. I have been noticing the stark cultural differences between where I'm at now and, uh, you know, San Francisco. I talked about this last time, I think, when I talked about coming back to Detroit. I'm still like, I'm still on one of the dating apps. Not that I have any interest in. If it was possible to do stuff in San Francisco, maybe, you know, um, there's no way of doing anything here. I realized that there was, I, yeah, I was doing some swiping this morning and somebody popped up and I was like, oh, you know, she's actually very pretty. Um, sounds interesting, you know, but I realized like, where exactly can you go right now? Like it's now winter. It is now snowing out. It is frigid. It is windy there's no real public places you can go and do a social distancing date comfortably. You know, and you can't go to like each other's houses uh, to begin with. You don't do that sort of thing on first dates. And I definitely can't do that anyway, because I live with my parents. I'm not going to be exposing my parents to that. They have. Um, But yeah, so I, I don't really don't, so there's really nothing to do. Like it's officially, there is no dating going to happen for this winter. Uh, yeah, plus, you know, I hear stories about people, like people were saying this early on during the pandemic when shelter in place first hit. They're saying now is the perfect time to like get on dating apps and meet people because you can, people were sharing stories about how Oh, I, you know, I met my spouse, uh, you know, in some situation where we couldn't meet face to face, we just corresponded at great length for a long time. And then eventually we met and, you know, now we're married. We're saying it's like now a time when you can get to know somebody, uh, for who they are and then later meet them. That's a really nice idea. I really love that, particularly because I'm not a hookup guy. Like, I, I need to 
like if I if I met somebody on the first date and she was like, yeah, let's get down to business. Let's do the let's do the dirty. Um, I would probably be very put off by that. I, I can't do that. I can't meet somebody and then just just go. Don't know why. Maybe I could. I've never really tried to do that. But it just doesn't seem like I. It doesn't seem like me. Um, where the hell was I going with this? The hangover is back. I need to get out in the cold again. My brain is starting to shut down. Anyway, no, like like early on in the pandemic, I did meet somebody on Bumble, and we talked a lot over the phone. We talked for hours and hours, and we really the conversation went very very well. Like, if you weren't overanalyzing it, it seemed to be going very, very well. We were getting along. And when we met, it was kind of like there was, there was enough to, like, sort of, initially those first few meetings, the first few times we hung out, I think there was enough residual of what chemistry there was from talking on the phone that it, it felt like there was something there. But after like a few of those hangout sessions, I, I realized, you know what? This, this, there's nothing, there's not enough here for me for a serious relationship. And I, I know that's, I, I knew that was what she was looking for. So as soon as it came up that she was, she dropped some sort of hint one time that she was like, you know, not, dealing with other people because we were involved. I realized where this was headed. And I was like, okay, you have to make a decision. And I, I thought about it and I thought, you know, it made sense when we were just talking to each other on the phone. But once I met you, that sort of completed the picture and it was a, it was a very, very big no. And that's always been the case for me. Like, I can't know until I meet somebody, until, until I'm looking at you while you talk. I can't make a determination there. There's, I'm trying to remember where I, I think Patton Oswalt said that on Twitter. He said that he met his spouse, not during a pandemic, but like they met virtually somehow. And, you know, it, it ended, he ended up marrying her, you know, the end of the story is that's the punchline. I don't think I could do that. I don't think there's, I have to, I have to see somebody. There's no, I would never, I would never assume that I, that, you know, that I could like build up a, be a pen pal with somebody and know them so well that I'm like, well, this, there's actually potential here. I can't know that till I meet them. So no, I'm not going to like be meeting people on the dating apps all winter talking to them on the phone and saying, well, maybe there's potential here. You know, we can't meet, but I'm going to hold out hope that when we do meet, it'll work out. No, my energy would be better going anywhere else. I don't even feel like I want to date right now. I'm on the dating apps just kind of as a way of keeping myself sane. You know, like this is something that in peacetime, if there wasn't this virus going around, it would be kind of sleazy. Like, if you just said, like, look, I'm just on the dating apps to kind of give myself, like, a self-esteem boost. Like, yeah, that's that's a pretty scummy thing to do. Like, oh, there's women swiping right on me. They've said they want to meet me. You know, 
Yeah, that's not something, it's not a crutch I would lean on under normal circumstances. It's kind of one of those things that I'm using right now just to get me through this, this, this crazy time. You know, it's one thing that like, if, if it kind of seems like my day is going down a dark path, like I'm feeling kind of lethargic and having trouble staying motivated and I forget that this is all going to end someday. That's actually a pretty nice booster. It's a nice like shot of caffeine to the brain. I thought about that. I, I have not given this a whole lot of thought, but just before I started recording this thing, I thought to myself, I imagined it being next spring or summer, 2021. There's a vaccine. It's been a nice winter. Spring is, you know, it's, it's warming up. The weather's going the other direction, the opposite gradient to what there is now. And it's kind of like, all right, I've had a good, you know, year with my parents, uh, spending time with them, but it's time for me to get back to my life and, you know, I can go anywhere. I can do anything, have all the experiences that I want to have. There's nothing limiting me. There's nothing keeping me in my house on the weekends. And I got so excited for that. I got so excited for that. Like I've forgotten that that's going to happen. Like before this whole coronavirus thing happened, I was kind of on self-imposed shelter in place anyway. I was sort of just, I don't know. Um, what's the right word to use? I was very, I don't want to say sheltered. I was very, very cautious. I was, I was having a lot of trouble venturing out, taking risks, experiencing new things. Like I really just needed to stay in my comfort zone, which was at home, listening to the music that I knew, watching movies that I knew, TV shows that I knew, just, I was in a rut. And it was only like a month before coronavirus that I sprung out of that. I realized, you know what? You're not getting younger. Life is just going to go on whether you experience it or not. And I, I want to. I suddenly had this overwhelming urge to get out and to live life the way I think people are meant to live it. And I started doing that. I really did. For a period of about two or three weeks, I did that. And it was an amazing two or three weeks. I barely remember it just because it was so so brief, but I was getting out and doing things and like talking to people, making plans. It was an exciting time. And then shelter in place hit. Right there. Just at the worst possible time. And so now it kind of feels like I'm back in the rut. Now it's a rut that's imposed on me by circumstances outwardly and not just my own inner character. I'm not just keeping myself on lockdown because I'm, I don't know, protecting myself from something. Um, I'm just, we're all protecting ourselves from a goddamn virus is what that's going on. So I, I lose sight of those two or three weeks where life was just felt, felt like there was a lot going on, felt like there was a lot of potential. 
and I was excited to like charge into an unknown future. It feels like that, it's hard to remember that that happened and it's hard to remember, it's hard to remind myself that someday these restrictions are gonna be lifted and I'm gonna get back to that. I can't wait for that. But, you know, until then, I'm just doing what I need to do to get by, you know, whatever it is that keeps me sane. Um, and yeah, that, that's being on the dating apps, maybe occasionally connecting with somebody and striking up a conversation and trying to, you know, trying to keep in mind that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, even though we don't know how long the tunnel's going to be there. There is a light. I know there's a massive light that I'm rushing towards. And I'm just trying to make the most of it. But I don't want to lose sight of that. The worst thing is that I end up in a rut and it ends up being self-imposed. Like as soon as I have the freedom to go live my life again, that I won't seize it because I'll have just gotten back into this habit that I was in. That's what That's what worries me. This is why I'm trying to keep how did I get on this? It was the whole dating app thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, all right. I just took a break. Okay, where was I? I had to charge my AirPods. Ah. I don't remember what I was talking about. I'm just going to pick up somewhere new. So, yeah, I actually mentioned Stephen King earlier. And I mentioned that there's a small handful of books that I wanted to reread by him. One of them was uh, Needful Things. And this is the one that always stuck with me. Um, I love the idea for the story, and I love the way it was executed. Uh, I think it's probably familiar to most people now, but this this is a story about... There's not really that many supernatural elements to it. Uh, but there's a mysterious fellow who moves into a small town in, in Maine, of course, opens up a little shop and sells things. And it's always, anybody who walks in, he has exactly the thing that they need to reclaim some part of their past or to feel whole again. It's like, what would you sell your soul for? so to speak. And I like the way the story plays out because it's it's sort of like he, he, he doesn't charge much for the items. Like if there's something that you really want, he'll sell it to you very cheap. But you have to play a prank on somebody else in town. And it's always set up so that the prank looks like it came from somebody else with whom the person you're playing it on already has a conflict. So to imagine like you have four people, you know, A, B, C, and D. And A and B are kind of on the outs with each other. They're kind of pissed off. They have some simmering conflict. And same thing with C and D. So C has to play a prank on A, and it looks like it came from B. And D has to play a prank on B, and it looks like it came from A. And so on and so forth. He just crosses these things. And he does this with the entire town. And he does it in such a way it's time that basically on a 
the span of a few particular days, suddenly all hell breaks loose and everybody is out for blood of the other person. And the only supernatural element in the story is that it's the, the owner of the shop. It's it suggested that he's, well, I mean, not just suggested, it's pretty clearly in there that he is the devil. He's some sort of person claiming souls, some sort of demon. Uh, he's something more than human, basically. But I like this because there, it's, it's not as though he goes into the town and causes any conflict. He just goes into town and stokes what's already there. And the way the whole thing is orchestrated, the way all of these people just end up wanting to kill each other, the way he does it. I just remember reading it. I remember I read it on a car trip in 1994. And... I remember just getting to a point in the story when suddenly everything is coming together, like everyone is out for everyone else and the town is falling apart and burning quite literally. Um, I just remember feeling the thrill of that. I was like, this is, it's, it's, you know, not good stuff that's going on, but, uh, So I just walked in front of my car. I think that's, I went to a, I went to a little music store very close to where I'm at right now uh, and bought a guitar yesterday. My mother has an acoustic guitar, but it's uh, not quite up to my standards. So I went and got one for myself. I figure if I'm going to be here for six months of winter, I want a guitar that I can play. And, uh, I think the guy that I bought my guitar from in the music store yesterday, I think he just walked in front of my car. I think that was him. I really have trouble recognizing people without without uh, masks on. Reading a book about neuroscience, apparently uh, people who are more, uh, people who are more right-brained, which is to say more normal, uh, more evenly balanced people, they will read uh, human emotions from the upper part of the face, like namely the eyes. Uh, people who are more left-brained heavy, which is to say, in a very imprecise and incorrect way, slightly autistic, they will actually read emotions from the lower part of the face. Now, I probably am, I probably am more on the autistic spectrum than I would care to admit. I'm, I'm less right brain. I could stand to have my right brain strengthened. This is why I'm reading stuff like Stephen King instead of just, you know, Kant or, you know, deep philosophy. I'm trying to strengthen, uh, my right brain. But walking around, like people have their, their mouths covered. It's like, I think most people can just recognize who people are by their eyes. I I have trouble doing that. If somebody is somebody has their mouth covered and their nose covered, like most of the lower half of their face is just obscured, I have a lot of trouble uh, recognizing people a lot of the time. And I think I, I tend to read people's emotions from from their mouths. So it's the struggle is real. Uh, but in any case, I do remember I do remember feeling just this thrill. 
of uh do I need to come back to that? I feel like I keep circling back to things and I'm like, yeah, I gotta tie this point off. You know, I left it dangling, but I really didn't leave anything dangling that needed to be resolved. There was plenty of closure. I'll tell you the one instrument I wish I, w- I could play would be a piano. I really wish my parents had a piano. I, th- I, I kind of thought about nudging them to buy one. Well, if I was going to nudge them to buy anything, it would probably be some piece of exercise equipment, like a stationary cycle of some kind. Um, would be nice to have that to complement the yoga and hit stuff that I am going to do indoors all winter. But I, I wish they had a piano. They have a couple of electronic keyboards, but they're not full. They're missing lower and upper keys. They're not the full 88. They're not weighted. Um, I really just want a, a just an, a regular piano. Uh, and I want to learn how to play one of those really, really well. I think as soon as this, as soon as I'm somewhere situated, and life is back to normal. That is on my list. That is one of the things I am going to do. I'm going to start taking piano lessons. I want to know how to play piano properly. I know how to sit down and like horse around on the thing, but I don't know how to properly move my fingers across the keyboard and, and properly sight read music. Like if I'm going to play anything on the piano, the way it's always been is I just have to have the thing memorized. Like I can read music, not in real time, but so I just, I just have to like figure out how to play it and then just know it by heart. It's a very, it's not a scalable way of doing things. This is, I, I really wish I had like had the discipline to actually learn how to do things properly when I was in high school, when I had the time to do stuff like this. But be that as it may, um, I'm also like, I, I got this guitar and I am trying to learn proper music theory as it applies to guitar, like the way a musician would approach the instrument. That's my goal for this winter. Um, I, I know how to like read tablature, like you have six lines on a piece of paper and there's numbers you know, written on the lines. And so you know which fret to hit where. And if you already know what the song sounds like, that's a pretty good way of, you know, transcribing music and learning how to play something on the guitar from that. But I don't have the same intuition on the guitar that I do on a piano. If you sit me down at a piano, I know, like if I play three keys, like I, I can look at them and immediately see, okay, I'm playing the first, fifth, and the third, you know, uh, notes, uh, in, in this particular chord. It's the major triad for whatever note. I know what the root is, you know, uh, it's just, it's just immediately, you can just see it. It's laid out in a very linear fashion. Uh, intervals are clear. Um, it's, it just, it's just, I have, I can see it. I don't even have to think about it. Uh, with the guitar, it's not like that. I play guitar way more than I do piano, but if I look at a guitar and I'm like, I'm playing two notes across two strings, 
it's not always clear to me one what exactly the notes are just immediately without having to think about it and what the interval is between them you know like from a music theory perspective i don't understand if i pluck these two strings together especially if they're not adjacent and they sound a certain way why do they sound like that like i started playing from a tab book the beatles across the universe uh yesterday and i was looking at the notes i was plucking it's like it's the it's the first and third strings sorry to nerd out on music here for a second but uh plucking the the first and third strings like and you're sort of going up and down the the guitar with that and i was like i don't understand why this sounds the way it does and why when you you switch up the position between the two strings like where your fingers are relative to each other like i can't tell what key this is in i i can't tell why these why this sounds harmonious why it matches the chords that are written above i i can see that on the piano just immediately the guitar i don't have the the eyes for that plus if you ask me to play a song and my hands are up in the seventh position let's say the way the way you would play a c major chord starting on the bottom string or the top string whatever the thickest one is um and you i just had to play a song up there um i don't know how to form chords up there if some of them i do if it's just a matter of i can play what is it the, the what is the open chord like i know guitar chords i know what e is i know what a is and i know you can just slide those up by barring the notes in front of them but there's a lot of more complicated chords that you know some of them i know down at the lowest position like a c minor 6 chord or something like that but if if you said like here just play like jazz guitar at the 7th position you're going to play like e 7th then go to a 6th then a 7th you know whatever whatever it might be if i was trying to like do this without switching positions without jumping up and down the neck i wouldn't know what i was doing that i really only know like a handful of chords in some places and there's i really only know a few of the ones that you can that are that are mobile that you can move up and down the neck so my goal this winter is to like no somebody says you have to play this chord and it's a really exotic weird one uh you know somewhere not just on the bottom part of the guitar like up on a pie i'd be able to just throw my hands to it right away and i know what notes i'm fretting which finger is producing what note and i can actually move between them with some fluency this is my goal right now i don't know if i'll get there because i don't i i think if you're going to play guitar i started taking guitar lessons back in 2008 actually like i I'd, i'd been playing guitar for a little while but i i realized i was doing things wrong and so i i thought the hell with it i'm going to go take lessons just somebody who knows what they're doing i want some guidance and so i went to this little music shop that 
was a few blocks from where I lived, and it actually had been where I took clarinet lessons in grade school. Um, little place in Royal Oak, which is closed now, I believe. But I ended up, uh, I ended up taking lessons from a guy named Jack, and he was an older fellow. And I don't remember if he was in Vietnam or Korea, but he was, he was in a war. And he was special forces. He was a Green Beret. Um, which, at, th- at this point, if I met somebody who was a Green Beret, um, if I met somebody who was formerly special forces in a major war, I would probably be a little freaked out by them. I, don't, I, w- I didn't know enough at the time to be all that concerned. I didn't didn't realize who I was really talking to, you know. I didn't realize that there's there are grunts, there's like there's people in the army. And I'm not knocking the army, you know. I'm not anybody who's serving in one of the armed forces. I there I'm just saying there's a hierarchy. I'm not passing any judgment. But there's there's the army and there is the Marines. You know, and then there's like special forces like there is. And the the further up you go, the higher probability is that you've seen or done some shit. And so I ended up taking guitar lessons from this uh, former special forces guy. And he was the nicest guy. I mean, he had no fight in him as far as I could tell. He was just, you know, in his, I want to say 70s, late 70s. And at some point, he, uh, well, from the get-go, the first thing he did, the first couple of books that he had me start working through were um, basically uh, scales and chords for jazz guitar. And I, I kind of pushed back on this at some point. I went along with it for a week or two maybe a few, but at some point I said, like, I I really am not terribly interested in the jazz guitar. Uh, Like, I I don't, like, jazz is probably the one genre of music I don't understand, don't care about yet, maybe. I've never gotten into it. And so I was like, I don't understand why I would spend my time doing this. And this was, this was the one thing that actually triggered a war story from him. He told me this in response to that, his answer was to say that he, he was in a war once with uh, somebody who was under his command and he told them to do something and the person did not do it. And you know, the, the ending of the story was the guy got killed because he didn't listen to this, he didn't listen to his commanding officer, who was the guitar teacher I'm talking about. And so the moral of that story, I think, was supposed to be, you don't quite know what you're doing, and you would best be served your own interests, whether you know it or not at this point, would best be served by just listening to me and following my instructions. And I didn't really question it. I mean, there's, there's, 
that that if that happened now, I think that might be a point at which I would maybe uh, part ways with somebody. Like I didn't really question it at the time. I was kind of like, okay, we're starting with jazz guitar, but in three weeks from now, we're going to be on to something else. I'm assuming. And it was like, no, no, this is going to be probably the first year or two when I realized it was a more long-term thing. I, I, I kind of gravitated away and I, I wasn't sure. I ended up moving to California within a few months of this. So it didn't even become an issue I had to confront directly. It just, it just went away. But, you know, I think he was right. I think if you want to approach the guitar as a musician, uh, there's, there's probably multiple ways of doing it, but starting with like jazz chords is probably a, a very good way of getting a foundation. It, it's kind of like you end up with a lot of knowledge that you really don't need probably practicing jazz guitar chords. It's, it's kind of like running drills, but you still end up with, with knowledge that is useful. Like you end up knowing the instrument very, very well. And even though you don't use that knowledge, it's, even though you're not using it directly, you are applying it constantly, whether you know it or not, whether you're conscious of it or not. So I'm, even though I don't know jazz, I am thinking if you want to know the guitar, even to just play simple rock songs, to know them really well, then that's really what you should get to know. And besides, I mean, I, as a guitar player, my weakness is just being able to jam. Uh, if you're really playing guitar with other people, most of what you're doing, if you're playing with musicians, people who call themselves musicians, then you're basically playing chords that other people can play lead or, or solo over. And I don't really know how to do that. I don't know. Just somebody says, hey, play something that sounds interesting that I can solo over. Um, I don't really know how to, how to do that well. You know, I can play songs that I know play chords for some Red Hot Chili Peppers song or something, you know, pretty easily. Just pull them up online and go. But I really can't exercise any creativity. Like, to the extent that I, I produce music on the guitar, it's basically me moving around on the instrument within the confines of songs that I have learned that are simple enough that I'm capable of playing them. It, it's basically in that space. And that's a very, very small search space. It's a very limiting search space. I mean, it's not like it's a, it's the same thing with the piano. Like there's, there's a difference between like mastering the instrument as a musician and knowing, knowing how to just improvise on it, knowing how, knowing proper technique, uh, versus just you can you can just sort of play some some songs that you know, and what you can compose is going to be limited by that. So that's that's my goal this winter. I, I'm going to try and still maybe get a piano. I'll, I'll maybe play around on the keyboard, uh, a couple of keyboards that my parents have. 
but um, actually there's a room in my parents' house that just opened up and it's pretty well isolated from an audio perspective. Like there's, if I started recording music in there, I don't think, I don't think people would, I don't think like ambient noise from my parents and other parts of the house would, would come in. I could probably actually start podcasting from there too. <clears throat> but in any case, yeah, um, I, I am hoping to uh, make some musical strides this winter. That is one of my goals is to come out knowing more about music and having produced some music um, than I did going in. I really wanted to lean into the Halloween season. Like I was reading about, I mentioned this, I was like reading about the history of Halloween, looking for like mythological motifs and things that are spooky that I could work into Halloween music. Like that's ultimately what I would like to target is I'd like to have like a Halloween music band. And I don't want it to be something corny. Like when you think Halloween music, there's, there's a bunch of one-off songs that really fit the season. Uh, like Thriller, for example, or Zombie at the Cranberries. And uh, Hell's Bells, I think that's ACDC. Maybe Stuff by Black Sabbath. Uh, there, there's songs that you can put on that are kind of creepy, but there is no like go-to Halloween party I don't know. Like, people make Halloween mixes. I don't know of a band that people put on and say, like, this is this is a crowd-pleasing Halloween album. It seems like Halloween music is either dark, like it, they're just single one-off songs from the rock catalog that happen to set the mood pretty well, and they're they're popular, so people people generally like them. But there isn't like a Halloween band. If you say like. I mean, I guess, I don't know if you can really claim that sort of territory. There isn't like a Christmas band. Nothing mainstream anyway. There's, I guess there's like the Trans-Siberian Orchestra or the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, stuff like There's definitely stuff, people play like Christmas songs, like traditional Christmas songs in there. But there isn't like there isn't like the quintessential Christmas band. When you say I want to listen to Christmas music, everybody's mind goes to like one group or one. Everybody seems to have their their scattered bits or their their favorite Christmas albums. But I would like to do that. I would like to ultimately. Um, I do have like a musical project that I, I wrote one album under. I would just keep releasing it under that. But I would like to just start putting out music that sets the Halloween mood that isn't, that people would enjoy listening to, that could be put on at parties. And that isn't just, you know, something niche. Actually, it would be niche. That's the entire point, is just to have it be very, very focused on, on one particular thing. Just that one time of the year is the one time that it 
it makes its appearance. Just always like putting out an album in August or September in anticipation of that and people, people get it and enjoy it. Of course, I really don't know how to do that though. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that would be. And, you know, usually when I, I think I could probably write a pop song. That's the thing is if somebody said like, write a Katy Perry sounding song, you know, something bubblegummy poppy, uh, it would be terribly produced. It would not be a good song, but I could write a song in that spirit. Something with a drum beat, a, you know, bass line, maybe a nice melody. And I can't sing, but if I had a singer who could perform it for me, it would be an okay song. Lyrics would, if somebody took what I wrote and actually produced it and performed it properly, you could put it on the radio and it would not be a terrible song. Like it would, it would be listenable. And if this isn't too conceited, it might actually be enjoyable. Like I think people might like it. It's possible for me to do that. I have enough understanding of music, enough of an intuitive feel that I can definitely like, create something like that. But if I go dark, if I'm like, I'm going to write some Halloween music, I would just, I would not write something that could be a people pleaser. If it were well produced and well performed, even then it would just, it'd be way too, I don't know, corny. Like the one Halloween album I wrote was just a bunch of little instrumental pieces that maybe you could play like at Disneyland for people who were waiting in line to go on like the Haunted Mansion ride. It might work there, but it wouldn't be something people would put on at parties. It would just be, people would be like, what is this? This has no life to it. It's like I am capable of making normal conversation, for example, even though I don't gravitate naturally towards that. I don't grav gravitate naturally towards writing pop music. But you know, there's a time and place for everything. You know, me talking about deep philosophical, philosophical conversations and the kind of dark Halloween-y type music I might write that they don't, they would never be mainstream. And I'd like it to at least have mainstream potential. And I'm not expecting, not expecting it to be anything popular. But part of it is a psychological challenge, I think. There, there is part of me that would like to adopt an art form, uh, strictly for marketability purposes. There's a lot there. I'd like to adopt an art form just for myself as well. Um, you know, where the challenge is, I just want to become very, very good at this. I don't know what that would be. If it's blowing glass or something, woodworking probably. But th that wouldn't be something I would hope to profit off of. That's just something I would like to, for my own satisfaction, for my own personal development and joy, to get good at something like that. Music, 
I would like there to be at least one or two musical projects that I would do on a regular basis where part of the challenge would be tapping into human psychology and understanding what is actually desired and to try and hack that. Like where the challenge is, this becomes marketable without you compromising your your vision for things. I think that's probably why I am thinking about Halloween. It is something that I naturally like. I like that time of the year. I like the sort of themes that are associated with it. I, I kind of like the sort of dark elements of it. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going. Anyway, music. I'm going to try and do music this winter. I'm going to see if I can make that a focus and actually be productive. Um, we will see. We will see. But yeah, for now, trying to trying to get the guitar down, trying to like learn it better than I do know it. I went into Trader Joe's yesterday. I have not been in one of those things since pre-COVID. Um, they're one of those places that they're what what they do is they limit the number of people that can go in the store. And of course, once you're in there, nobody's people are not really being all that cautious. Like you're you're within six feet of people. Uh, at least the one I was in, there were plenty of people walking right by each other. Um, just all caution to the wind. Um, but what they do is they limit the number of people that can go into the store. So I've, I've encountered Trader Joe's for the last several months, but whenever I do, there's always a massive line of people, uh, like down the block from the front of the store. Um, but I went, I was, I was up pretty early yesterday morning and I realized that they opened at eight and not, then they're like 10, like I'm used to grocery stores opening. So I, I just went over around 830 or so. And there was, there was people in the store. It was, it was reasonably crowded, but there wasn't a line. So I just went right in and it was, uh, it was painless, but I, I haven't been in Trader Joe's because they're, they're, I guess that that's their safety precaution. They, they're, limit the number of people that can go in. I haven't encountered that anywhere else. Like the Safeway I used to shop at in San Francisco. They they basically like their only entrance to the store was somewhat tucked back and hard to find. Like if you didn't know how to get to it, you might just say I'd you might just walk up to the the, the Safeway's front entrance and you knew you know it's open because you can see people shopping, but you can't find the entrance and all the obvious doors are locked. He would just give up and, you know, go somewhere else. I think that was their mechanism. Because they weren't doing anything to limit how many people were in the store. I went in, I think in, in July, I went in the middle of a, a Saturday. Instead of just, the advantage of being unemployed during COVID is that I could just go shopping when I knew nobody would be in the stores. I go weekday mornings. But one time I went out, I went into like, the store on a Saturday and it was it was madness there was no way you could social distance and nobody was nobody was really trying they were just had their faces covered 
Anyway, that's the end of that story. <laughs> um, actually, I think I'm going to start driving home. This has been going on for long enough. This has been good. I forgot what it was like to just turn on this thing and start talking for a couple of hours. This has felt good. My throat is raw. I feel like I'm going to have to go home and pour peppermint oil down my throat. Ah, yeah. Gotta miss doing this. We gotta keep doing this. Yeah, what the hell else is going on? I carefully make my way through the parking lot. Yeah, again, it's not really clear to me who is listening to this. I don't think it's anyone that I know. If it is, it's probably people that are reading my blog. And so I do make an effort to like not repeat material between the two. Because I figure that the, the, whatever, the four people, <laughs> whatever it is who are both reading my blog and listening to this podcast, uh, they don't want to hear the same stuff, uh, repeated. So I try to like, try to like talk about different things in the two different mediums. But now, interestingly enough, I have been talking a lot about, um, Carl Jung this past summer. I haven't so much lately kind of gotten away from that, but I really found it fascinating, the whole idea of the collective unconscious. Uh, the idea that there's just some part of us that tends to, how would you put it? The archetypes are instinctual parts of our psyche. They're built-in mechanisms that tend to sort of produce the same images. They're, they're, they're little nucleuses or nuclei that tend to draw associative material to themselves. And between individuals, they tend to draw the same ideas, even cross-culturally. Um, this is why there's the same motifs and same symbols used in all world religions, because there's something in us deep down that always produces these same motifs and symbols regardless of the culture in which we were raised transcends culture and i've read a lot about that the the one story that i that that Jung was asked about this in an interview that I saw with him. And then he said, like, well, how do you know this is true? How did you come to this idea? And Jung mentions a story about when he was, um, you know, very early on when he was a psychologist dealing with a schizophrenic. And the schizophrenic was telling him, uh, there's a phallus on the sun hanging down. And as he moved his head from side to side, the tube would, or the phallus would move with him, like it would. And this phallus was responsible for generating the wind on the earth. And this was in Switzerland in 1906. And in 1910, 
in France, there was a bit of uh, mythology published from Mithraism, which is uh, the variant of paganism that was a competitor to Christianity in the first couple of centuries uh, in the Roman Empire. It was the it was what the what the Roman pagans were worshiping. Um, It wasn't the emperor and it wasn't Christ. Uh, and this was translated from an ancient language. And I don't think it was Latin and published for, you know, an educated audience in French. But it describes uh, a tube hanging off of the sun that moves back and forth with the person's head who's observing it and that this tube generates the wind. And so Jung took this as a hint. He thought there's absolutely no way this schizophrenic could have absorbed this account and have just been repeating it back. Like he didn't pick it up and is just, you know, regurgitating something that he heard or hallucinating something based on something he'd picked up previously. And so that, that was what Jung called the hint. He said this was he was like, this is what tipped me off and made me start digging for this in particular. He's like, there must be something to this. There must be some sort of convergent evolution here, something to it. There's a reason that you look across cultures and the same things keep arising. And so I, I've, I've read all these different sorts of things. They're, they're fascinating. But it's all been purely intellectual, and it's been very, very far removed from my own personal experience. Um, a couple of months ago, I did have a, I did have a very odd experience, which very much echoes this sort of story. So, and that is to say that, so I, I started reading uh, Jung's works on alchemy. I became interested in alchemy. And uh, I, the thing is, is that Jung's writings are often very difficult to comprehend. I mean, generally, he's he, he was a very, very, I don't know what his IQ was. He's one of the smartest people I think I've ever uh, been able to read and understand some of and been interested in reading, really. Uh, but his ideas are distilled and made accessible by one of his, by a woman who was one of his colleagues during his lifetime, a woman by the name of Marie Louise von Franz, um, also Swiss. And I, I ordered one of her books on alchemy, uh, the green one with the Ouroboros um, on the cover. And that arrived one evening, and I just sort of opened it up. Uh, I read the first chapter and that was it. I just, I just read the first chapter then, uh, you know, it was, it was late, put it down and then went to bed. And, uh, that very night I had a dream, uh, which I describe in some detail on my blog. Uh, basically I was on ocean beach where I used to jog and 
there was basically a black cloud covering everything. Like I, I was looking for the light of a lighthouse off in the distance uh, to the south across the beach, and I couldn't see it. And I couldn't see it because there was a black cloud obscuring everything. The black cloud covered the ground. It was covering everything. Like it was, there was a little bit of, there was some oh, gaps in it where some light managed to peek through. But basically, I, I, I really couldn't see anything. Everything was obscured by this uh, black fog or black mist. And it was black. It was not just dark. It was definitely black. It was like a black smoke. It was like the smoke monster from Lost. If it uh, basically got very, very big and encompassed everything and there was almost no holes in it. And I, I kind of thought this was, I, I thought this was maybe just a, I, I had left San Francisco just before the fires got bad in August of 2020. And I thought to myself, maybe this is, this is just about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, like I, I, I had just seen uh, imagery, like photographs people had taken in the Bay Area and posted online when the smoke from the fires got so bad that San Francisco just looked post-apocalyptic. It looked like, it looked like hell. Like the sky was orange in the middle of the day. There was barely any light getting through. It was just, it looked miserable. I'm, I'm really glad I wasn't there while that was going on. I, I thought the dream had something to do with that. Anyway, I woke up the next morning and I was trying to, I was thinking about this and I came back to this book on alchemy and I read like the next chapter, like chapter two. And I started just sort of thumbing around. The book is full of pictures of alchemical symbolism. And I came across one uh, later on in the book, like the chapter 10 or something, describing some alchemical writings from uh, Jacob Boehm. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, from Aurora Consurgens. And the picture itself looked very familiar. And I read the caption below it, and it it said, "This is the uh, the black cloud, the initial state of alchemy, um, the initial stage of the psychological process of individuation, the confrontation with the unconscious, uh, where." The person who's writing the alchemical writing, they describe a black cloud that covers everything. And it's supposed to correspond to a state of melancholia, a state of being lost or being confused. And it's a state where you need to purify yourself, to break free from whatever holds you and you know, go from black to white to red. The, the transition from black to white being a purification and the transition from white to red being the uh, emerging from night, basically the, the dawn. And so this actually made sense. There's a bunch of details about the dream that I'm leaving out. There's a whole narrative around it, around this whole black cloud that I'm not elaborating on here for the for brevity's sake. 
Uh, but it, it, it fit. The thing is the meaning, the alchemical meaning of the black cloud, the state that's called the Negredo. Uh, that actually lent a whole lot of understanding to the dream that I had. I was able to interpret it because of that. And so I realized that that was my own personal confirmation that there's probably something to this. There probably is. There are motifs that just recur because they they mean the same thing to us all. I think this was this was meant to, to show me something about myself. Uh, and it, it's it's there in a in a in a writing of alchemy that's five hundred years old. I it's possible I could have picked that up from somewhere. But it's it, it it the timing of that, the fact that it was I had that dream the day before I read about it, the night after the book had arrived, when I just started getting into it. Kind of like I wonder, like, is, is this just a coincidence or is there really something to the brain? Are we all kind of. Is there something to like, OK, I was reading about J.B. Ryan and he's the guy that. If you watch that opening scene in Ghostbusters, where he's doing the experiment with the cards and shocking the people. That's based on the work of J.B. Ryan. He was using cards to try and say, he would, he would show them to people backwards and say, like, what do you think is on this card? And what he concluded from his studies is that there are some people who have some measure of, you know, extrasensory perception, what we call ESP, some sort of psychic ability. And it was J.B. Ryan who established the Department of Parapsychology at Duke University and did these sorts of things. And I think Duke University has since distanced itself from parapsychology. I don't think they regard it as a credible science. And just the way I don't think it is a credible science. Uh, what I do wonder is, is that science is generally very interested in what it is it can bring under its own control. So Physics experiments are repeatable. And I haven't looked into this. I'm not saying there's anything to ESP. I'm not saying that I believe in any parapsychological claims. I don't know anything about them. From a little I have gleaned from accounts, the way you, you read about people who have experiences that could be regarded as psychic they have a premonition and it comes true and it seems like it's a little bit too too perfect uh, to be a coincidence, a little bit too on the nose to just be an accident. The way these things are described, it's never like people can control them. It, it seems like something occurs to people. A person just has some thought or they have a dream or they have some sort of vision that later comes to fruition. It's never, it's never like the person brings this about. It just sort of happens to them. 
it, it like comes up from some deep part of the brain as a flash and it ends up being something of a premonition it ends up being more than just something random and so i wonder if esp is something that cannot be controlled but just sort of exists in little pockets that it is something it is a capacity that people have but people do not have the capacity to control if there's anything to it i think that's it and of course if that's the case then it is not in you can't investigate it from a scientific perspective it isn't repeatable and i i don't know what more you could really do with that but i think that that to the extent that i believe in anything like that that that's that's where i might give it some some leeway like i can't be sure I'm not going to make any assertions but it's possible that psychic phenomena are real there is something to them but it's not something that can be brought under conscious human control anyway that's my story i just got home uh to my parents place going to go inside and uh yeah i don't know what i'm doing tonight it's sunday i work tomorrow and uh yeah i guess it's on to christmas now that halloween's over i do know that typically if you just throw up your christmas stuff the day after halloween you're typically regarded as some sort of christmas loony who's jumping the gun uh again i i think it's kind of like the dating app i mentioned earlier under normal circumstances that's true but i want i want those christmas lights up now i don't care if it's early um so i'll probably do that i'll probably probably go down in my parents basement and try and find all their christmas stuff and just start bringing it up i'm not i'm debating whether or not to even ask them cuz i mean they they might say my mom wouldn't care my dad might grouse a little bit but whatever i think i'm going to do that in any case yeah we've come to that point again where i am going to close and i'm going to say hey happy pandemic Happy Halloween. Hope you're uh getting ready for the holidays and I hope you're staying healthy, staying safe out there wherever you are. Take care. And until next time. This is Jim signing off. Take care. Cheers.